0: This is Liberating Sustainability, an intersectional take on the climate emergency. In each episode, field leaders from student liberation movements and academia deconstruct the exclusivity of sustainability activism and
1: education. I'm Jelena Sofroniewicz, And I'm Hattie Ruddick. And this time we're exploring the intersections of sustainability and race. What is a climate refugee? How do colonial legacies limit multicultural participation in sustainability movements? And how can interpersonal relations make sustainability activism more inclusive? Exploring these topics are Judy Ling-Wong, CBE, Honorary President at the Black Environment Network, and Muna Ali, VP Activities and Development at the Union of
2: Kingston Students. My name is Judy Ling Wong. I am a poet, painter, and environmentalist, and I'm best known for being the honorary president of Black Environment Network, which works for full multicultural environmental participation. In terms of sustainability, at present, for me, it means to relate to the earth and to people in a way that we can survive together. We're at the critical point in time where we are right on the edge if we do not make the absolutely correct decisions and act on them as an emergency, the prospects are really unthinkable. So, sustainability for me is the biggest thing at the moment.
3: My name is Mina Ali. I am currently the Vice President of Activities and Development at Kingston University Students' Union. That is actually called the Union of Kingston Students. Um, part of my role is uh, overlooking the sustainability agenda at my university. Um, Sustainability wasn't something that I was involved in um, before I started my role. It's something that I gradually grew uh, grew into, um, even in my third year at university. And I started to understand the importance of sustainability as I got more involved in the NUS. Um, I should mention them also on um, the NUS National Scrutiny Council. And um, it's truly one of the most important things. There is no Planet B. And it's very important that we are being more sustainable in our everyday um, life and choices preserving our natural resources preserving um, our earth and making sure that we have a habitable place to live in how do you believe sustainability is related to or affected
1: by intersectionality particularly when it comes to race
3: I feel like when you look at the news headlines and like what's actually been shown, we see the effects. Um, So for example, when it came to the Australian forest fire, um, we we heard about that everywhere, but do we hear about the consequences of climate when it happens to um, those that are from, um, say, Africa or South America? We don't hear much about them. And um, there's not much of a focus on it. We've seen black people in Louisiana and they've actually named it the Cancer Alley die as a result of toxic chemicals that were released because of the industrial plants that are located in that area. And industrial plants are located in areas that primarily affect people of colour, that affect black people, that affect brown people. And um, you don't see that effect when it happens to our white counterparts. Climate change is already uh, an everyday reality for um, people of colour and it's not something that's just going to happen in the distant future. Whether it's um, severe droughts or floods or hurricanes, it's something that's felt now. Inequality has been part of
2: society for so long that enormous damage has been done. So that we see right across the world, the people that suffer the most are the poorest people, black communities, and minority communities in the West as well. Why this is so is historical. And we have a huge legacy, for example, from colonialism, so that although we don't have colonies anymore, a lot of the ways things are done still carry on. So, for example, when we talk about discrimination in terms of race and so on, especially with Black Lives Matter at the moment, which has sent such a wave of emotion right across the world and fired people up to really do something about inequality in racial terms. You see, racial things are not just national. Every nation suffers from racist inequality in some way, but it happens right across the world. So that a lot of the trade systems, for example, in slavery times and very much carrying on from that afterwards means that whole countries are treated like they mean nothing. So the trade relationships, for example, between the West and Africa and Asian countries and so on, The exploitation is there because at one time when they exploited those people, they just think they didn't matter at all because they're of a different race. So racial issues are really big in this effect on communities. And now that sustainability is highlighted, we really need to look very carefully and redress all the things that have gone wrong. And not only that, in terms of sustainability, is something that is not just local. All the themes of environment are local and global. For example, for quite a long time, you know, the way the winds blow from Britain into Europe meant that when we had pollution, a lot of the pollution blew off our shores and landed on the black forest in Germany, and they called it acid rain. So you can see how all sorts of things happen right across the world that are interlinked so that these sort of complex systems we need to look at, both the environmental and the social inequality and so on, are all bound up together. It's a big job we've got to do now that we are aware of it.
0: I want to pick up on something Judy mentioned earlier. You talk about the lasting legacy of colonialism. And I want to ask, with respect to your work with the Ben, how have these colonial relations defined? or limited multicultural participation in sustainability movements thus far?
2: Colonialism and empire, it is that history that has brought a lot of people into the UK country because of that relationship. So that, for example, when there was huge problems in Uganda, we had a huge wave of Ugandan Asians coming in, and then other unrest or simply because sometimes you do have the right to come to their mother country. So this is how we got so-called the people we call our ethnic minorities in this country. But many of these people, especially, for example, when you think of Windrush and the Caribbean and so on, when they came to this country, They actually came sometimes from very beautiful rural areas in their own country. But when they came here, they had to come into the urban areas, completely cut off from the countryside, taking the very worst, poorest jobs, things like sweeping factory floors and things like that, working very, very hard for little money. And they just didn't have either the knowledge of where to go to enjoy themselves with the contact with nature, or the money to get to places that are farther away. So this has been a huge problem, so that many ethnic minorities, especially the second generation that has been in those urban areas and never saw the countryside, think of themselves very much as urban people and cut off from nature. So when the Black Environment Network wanted to integrate the ethnic minority people of this country into the mainstream environmental movement, the first job we had to do was to enable them to see nature at large in our beautiful nature reserves in the countryside, our national parks, our forests, and our woodlands and so on, so that they can reconnect to all of this because they grew up in a place where they didn't see any of this. So the journey of connecting ethnic minorities in this country to nature has been undertaken by the work of ben because in 30 years of working with participation i can collapse the whole process into two phrases we love what we enjoy and we protect what we love if you never had access to beauty and nature at large how can you come to love it If you don't identify with it and don't love it because you don't have it, why would you protect it or fight for it? You don't know what it is. So it's been a long journey of 30 years to, first of all, take people into the countryside, reconnect them with nature, do as much as is possible within the urban areas to create areas of wildness and things like that. And then the journey of reconduction means that we now have a huge wave of young black and ethnic minority people who are now champions and activists in the environmental sector, which is very exciting.
1: You kind of alluded to it already, but um, it'd be interesting to know whether you think the environmental crisis we're currently seeing is
2: a product or is it a reflection of racial inequality? Some of the things that have been done to the environment has been through this view that some countries, because of the black people being there, because of the colored people being there, these are countries that don't matter. You can just go and mess them up. Yeah. And this is really drastic because there are things like the Amazon, which is part of the major lungs of the world. There's Africa, which has magnificent wildlife and so on. And a lot of this has been trashed because of this attitude to those countries. The relationship between people and each other and the relationship between people and nature are very enmeshed in what happens to both nature and to people. So this adjustment we're going through now that we're conscious of it means that this this thing of diversity, equality, interconnectedness, the local and global nature of what happens to the environment and so on. All this has now got to be repaired and readjusted for it to happen. For example, chicken is actually fed on soya and to get that very cheap soya, forests in Brazil and so on are being cut down in order to have cheap soya for a rich nation to have cheap chicken. If we don't have information and so on, we're not aware of it.
0: Do you thus consider that the call for climate justice must also be a call for
2: racial justice? It is very obvious that climate justice is about racial justice and about inequality and discrimination of all kinds. You know, all disadvantaged groups have a lot in common in the way they suffer in the discrimination, in the ways they are treated, and so on. And of course, some of these things are layers and layers of the same person. You can be of a different race, and you can be queer, you can be trans, you can be working class, you can be poor, you can be disabled, you can be a woman. All those things multiply to make disadvantage a very dreadful thing to have to suffer in the 21st century. Something that's really
0: prominent on the Black Environment Network's website is that they say there's no such thing as a pure environmental project, because one of those would be something that would reject its social and cultural context. So with respect to climate activism, can you give some examples of how you can integrate these different elements, social, cultural, and environmental concerns with respect to sustainability?
2: I think if you look at one of the big, big issues is the position of women in the world. So you can be from an ethnic minority and you can be a woman. And in many, many cultures across the world, women actually have a central role in what happens to their community, how you do things, whether they're environmental or not. And at the same time, they're disempowered. So when you do things like in a lot of countries which are less economically developed to concentrate on the education of girls and the support of women having access to the control of their bodies through being able to make decisions through the choice of using contraception and so on, all these things are not obviously environmental in years past, but now they are. Everybody recognizes that by doing things at the level of social elements, cultural elements, the way the whole thing is framed, whether you have access to health, access to education and so on, it ends up with environmental outcomes. It's completely indisputable.
1: Everything you said, I think it hit the nail on the head perfectly. And you started alluding to it there, but I'm quite interested to hear Muna's views on specifically what issues students of colour face when it comes to sustainability. So you started talking about what issues young people face, but it'd be interesting to get the student perspective on that.
3: I'm relatively new when it comes to um, sustainability, but I think it's um, primarily about edu- um, education and understanding like um, the impacts that Every decision you make, whether it's going to the grocery store to buy something, it does have an effect on our environment. And I, um, one thing that I'm very passionate about is making sure that, um, like when it comes to the curriculum and, um, anything that's taught within our university is embedded in, um, into that because, uh, really and truly, like sustainability isn't just for, um, like geography or certain topics that, um, you learn deeply about these issues for every course. It's for everyone to understand, um, for us to have an inclusive sustainability campaign and to um, truly make a difference, it needs to educate people from every environment to make different decisions. It comes down to so many things, like with, with our university, at least, something that I've seen is like the energy, the heat, how we uh, dispose of our waste. Um, all of these decisions are important to consider, and um, I think we need to tackle it from all environments and to get all students involved. Um, one thing that I did with... Um, also in coordination with um, other students within the NUS is past the, um, the Green New Deal motion, which looks at encouraging radically reformed green institutions. And, um, like that's something that I'm passionate about into, um, in making sure that NUS actually implement this or, um, provide these tools and resources, um, for all universities and unions, um, to use in their institutions.
0: Could either of you share some examples or experiences of racial exclusivity and perhaps the single perspective approach that is often embedded in climate education and climate activism?
2: What I would like to share is the structural side of it. I think that Black Lives Matter has brought this forward really well because instead of just thinking, oh, racism and all that is just a matter of personal attitude – No, it's the whole framework and structure where the power is. You see, you can actually be a racist and you won't be able to hurt anybody because you have no power. It's racism and power that makes all these terrible effects and impact on people that is happening. So in order for people to have that counter power, to balance the picture and begin to have a voice is within the structures of decision making and leadership. So I'm so happy that, you know, universities are now nurturing leadership and the voices of young people for different groups representing different issues to bring them forward. And I think that we also should be very aware that the media only looks for sensation. When they look for a young voice, they want that young voice to have some sort of story before they look at the issue, which is completely wrong. If an issue is important, then it should be brought forward. But many very serious young people with a straight message just doesn't get the look in. They don't get covered because they think, oh, that's quite boring. It's just an issue. In, there's no story. So I think that it's really important that we are aware that we use aspects of communication where we have the control. So social media, as you know, is very important. And the podcasts you're making is really important. And to be able to use webinars and Zoom and so on and come closer to each other, to a widening web of people instead of just being ruled by the top media.
1: We've spoken a lot about exclusivity around climate activism, and the kind of narrative. From here, how do we make sustainability work more inclusive, especially to people of colour?
2: With sustainability, as I said, there are two major relationships that are intertwined. One is the relationship of people to nature, and the other one is the relationship of people to each other. In terms of things that are more objective, like the relationship of people to nature it can sort of make people do things. If they have information and so on, they can go ahead and do it, especially if they feel that, you know, they're going to suffer from certain aspects of climate change and so on. They feel that the threat makes them frightened and they go and do it. But in terms of the relationship of people to each other, it's a very different kettle of fish. You can have laws about race and so on that say to people, you mustn't hurt people, you mustn't be racist and so on. But fundamentally, the relationship of people to each other is about hearts and minds. So that you need to inspire people and you need to give people the experience that makes them want to relate to each other. And that is why the personal action is so important in our lives. So if we have black friends and so on, we should really help to integrate them into the wider circles of our own networks. If we have opportunities, we will help personally on that front because we have feelings for those actions. And so when you look at Black Lives Matter, why so many people are acting now is because such a terrible event has awakened a lot of emotion. And that emotion is trying to find expression People realize that because of what they've seen, that is so shocking that they want to do something about diversity and equality. So that kind of heart-based driving force for action is something that will help sustainability to become more inclusive in how actions actually take place to help Black and ethnic minorities become part of the mainstream.
3: I completely agree. If you walk down the street and you see just people casually walking by, how many of them actually understand that um, that climate change actually affects them? But yeah, I think it's important to, uh, for people to understand um, that it does affect all of us and um, it's something that we need to do, that we need to um, campaign hard on to make sure that we make that effective change. Continuing
0: on from a point you were making earlier, Judy, how and where do we see these conversations and these actions taking place? Is sustainability work becoming more inclusive?
2: As I said, it is about heartfelt communication. When it is about people, that's where the starting point actually is. And when we personally begin to act with emotion about the impact of the environment on particular groups of people and make that known. Other people find a resonance in that. So there's this widening web of circles of friends, circles of colleagues, the committees, the conferences, the webinars, and so on. I think that at the moment, because of the strength of the digital, we have an unfolding opportunity to build on this. So a whole web of communication that keeps building on each other and is flowing at the moment is making me optimistic in these dark times, especially the energy of young people, which can find expression through the use of these networks that don't cost money. You know, Before, money was a big barrier. If you wanted to organize a conference, you had to have A conference hall, people had to travel, pay for that, come pay for accommodation, pay for conference fees and all that. And now we've seen that we've adapted in such a way that we are much more powerful in our communication. Many, many organizations says that since COVID and the use of Zoom, and many people were resistant. They didn't want to do this. They said, oh, no, no, we don't want all that digital stuff and so on. But when they realized this power, because the Zoom actually enabled them to see relatives that they would otherwise not see at all, and they got used to it, they then got used to events and conferences. And now we have an explosion of the digital phenomena and a lot of conferences and events and webinars and so on. You used to have to pay for it. It's now all free. This is so conscious, for example, within the English speaking world, you know, across in the United States and Australia and so on. There are people, because we know each other, we now attend each other's conferences across the world. And people in another country, when they pick a conference time, they're even aware of the time difference. They pick it so that as many people as possible can actually attend that conference in daylight hours. So that's that kind of consciousness that builds up an explosion of communication. So instead of having a conference with just 50 people or 100, we now have conferences. We are told 500 people instead of 50. And there are conferences which even have a thousand people. It is absolutely amazing. And then the follow up to podcasts and so on, when we tell our friends and so on. Again, you know, I was in a, in a recorded conference event recently. And I think that when we had the conference, we had a couple of hundred people. Apparently as the word spread, we had Over 5,000 people access that recording. This is amazing. So this web of communication, building on each other, on energies, on our passion and so on, can really, really help sustainability in terms of both people and nature to come together in a very different way.
1: Thank you so much. I know I've learned a lot from that and I thought I was pretty clued up on this. Um, But I've taken a lot out of that so hopefully everyone that listens to this will do as well. Liberating Sustainability is produced by Jelena Sofranievich and Hattie Ruddick. The series was commissioned by Students Organising for Sustainability UK, an educational charity responding to the climate emergency. For more episodes on
0: intersectionality and sustainability, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.